This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be hearing from Jo Fab Hernandez about her huge and sumptuous book, which is called Singular Spaces from the Eccentric to the Extraordinary in Spanish Art Environments. Jo Fab Hernandez, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Rachel, I'm delighted to be here. Jo, I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I was born in Chicago and uh, went to school in Wisconsin, uh, where I got my bachelor's degree. And it was at that time uh, when I met my then boyfriend, now husband, Sam Hernandez, that we started um, going out on weekends to visit some of the really interesting art environments around the state of Wisconsin. And I hadn't really put a name to that earlier, um, but I'd actually remember after I began to go to some of these sites, I realized I had seen some as a child as well in the Chicago area. Um, and that kind of sparked, sparked my interest so that later when I went to UCLA to get my master's degree in folklore, I decided to do my thesis on art environments in the United States and cut a swath kind of through the center part of the country uh, studying those environments at that time. And so that was the early 70s. Um, Subsequent to that, I have spent my life in museums pretty much, uh, was, uh, had a Rockefeller fellowship to be at the Dallas Museum of Fine Arts. Then we moved out to California and I directed and was chief curator of the Triton Museum of Art and the Monterey Museum of Art. Um, I took some time off for uh, the birth of my daughter and to do some uh, freelancing. And since 2000, I've been at San Jose State University where I run the gallery and uh, am a professor in the School of Art and Art History. At the same time, uh, I've really retained my interest in art environments across my career. And although I've worked with many, many different kinds of art and artists over the years, I've I always come back to our environments and the creators that built them. Uh, and so in the early 80s, I became aware of this organization called SPACES, um, an acronym for Saving and Preserving Arts and Cultural Environments. And the founding director, a man named Seymour Rosen, uh, who also was passionate about these kind of sites, And I started working with him at that time. We actually co-curated an exhibition that we called Divine Disorder that was on California art environments at the Triton Museum in 1985. And then um, during the time that I was freelancing, I started working with Spaces much more, doing a lot of development work for him, uh, for them. (laughs) And then um, 
when he began to sicken in the early 2000s, we started talking about um, a way for the organization to continue to move forward. And uh, he would he wanted me to be, become the director of the organization subsequent to his death, which I did in um, the fall of 2006. So uh, you've used a phrase quite a lot in, in that little potted biography, autobiography, um, which was art environment. So I wondered if you could tell us what exactly do you mean by an art environment and how is that folklore and what is folklore? If you can answer all, all those questions at once, that would be wonderful. <laughs> well, um, let me start out with what my understanding of folklore is, which is basically the the um, manifestation of what people know and what they do and what they make um, that has been learned in a way that has been transmitted in a in a non-academic way, shall we say. Um, this is community-based. It is um, a production that the aesthetic can be shared by members of the community. So for example, if you're a fiddle maker, everybody in that community will be able to determine whether the fiddle you made is a great fiddle or a mediocre fiddle or a terrible fiddle. Um, the thing with art environments is that they resonate among the world of folklore, but they're also very much tied to a unique aesthetic that would be similar to that found in contemporary art. So they, they kind of fall between the cracks of a lot of different um, genres. And because of that, I think they were ignored um, really up until I would say the last 20 or 30 years or so, because people didn't quite know what to call them or, or how to categorize them. Um, they certainly respond to folklore in that folklorists always um, understand that the sense of place that envelops any creator is very germane to what they create. Um, also, similarly, the each environment, although it might display a personal, although it always does display a personalized form, um, oftentimes there are traditionally learned construction techniques that may be included in how the work is actually created. Um, there may be references to orally transmitted um, myths or legends or tales. Um, and it's interesting that although today we tend not to call them folk art environments, um, at the at the early day in the early days when they were trying to actually formulate a a descriptor a definition for the genre, they did call them folk art environments in order to distinguish them from the kinds of public art installations that contemporary mainstream artists were then creating. But one of the very big differences between the work of the artists that I study and those public art installations by contemporary mainstream artists is that the work of artists that I study work, they work in their spaces. They're ornamenting their homes, their yards, their farms. They are not, um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, creating some commission in some other place that is owned by someone else. This is a space that they are involved with most of the time, 24 seven. And for that reason, it becomes really a um, almost a, as some other scholars have put, it's almost like a three-dimensional curriculum vitae because as they're involved with it on a day-to-day -day basis, on an hour-to-hour -hour basis, it's changing constantly. 
and it's reflecting their concerns and their interests across their lives. That's a wonderful description. Thank you very much. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how this amazing book came about? It actually came out of another book that I was writing. We had, um, my husband's family is all from Spain. And although we live in California and although teaching Spanish in the schools is kind of standard, the instruction that my daughter was getting in Spanish in her school was terrible. (laughs) And every year they would start with the same, you know, this is your nose, this is your mouth next year. This is your nose, this is your mouth. And so we had an opportunity to go to live in Spain in 1999. One of uh, Sam's former professors had a home there and he wasn't going to be using it. And he offered to let us live there in a small village in southwestern Catalonia, which is in the northeast corner of Spain. And so we took him up on it and um, I was able to kind of move my projects to the side. Sam had a sabbatical. And we went and and we went in the early summer and our daughter uh, played on the streets with the little kids in the village. And by the time school started in the fall, she was conversant enough that she could um, study and take classes in Spanish and also in Catalan. Oh, wonderful. And so, yeah, it was really it was a life changing experience. And so she had her job, which was going to school. And Sam was working on his art. He's a sculptor. And so I was kind of just keeping my eyes open and casting around for things that I might be able to parlay into some kind of project at a later time. And so I ended up working with um, several different artists and artist groups to uh, write a book that was called Forms of Tradition in Contemporary Spain that was published by the University of Mississippi in 2005. And it it looked at the fact that there was a, a continuum of traditionality that went from artists that are very, 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 very traditional. In this case, a a, a, um, potter that I worked with in La Mancha who didn't even use electricity for his wheel. He just used a a wheel, a wooden wheel that had been um, brought over by the Phoenicians in the third century and was rigorously rustic about how he approached his work. To, at the very other extreme, this art environment builder, Joseph Pujula, who we just happened upon Uh, as we were further up north. And as I was working on all these artists, I, of course, had to do a lot of background research because my own background is not Spanish, and I didn't know that much about um, particularly the the religious um, background that would contextualize some of these other kinds of projects like the uh, this group of devils that that run um, street traditional street theater or the large paper mache figures that they use for village festivals and events. But, and I was finding wonderful contextual material and a lot of research that had been done by Spanish folklorists in these other areas, but there was nothing on art environments in Spain. And so because I'd been involved with them since the early seventies, I all, you know, as I was trying to work on Joseph's chapter, I realized that I, you know, I guess that was going to be my <laughs> to create, um, to write a book uh, documenting the art environments of Spain. And I didn't know of many. Um, I By the time I had submitted an application to the Fulbright Commission, which I ultimately received a Fulbright in 2007, 2008, I knew about a half a dozen sites around Spain. And I 
uh, was guesstimating that I might find 15 or 20 more. But by the time I had to bring this project to a conclusion, because it was, it had to, the book had to come out in conjunction with an exhibition that I was doing at the university. Uh, I'd learned of 45 artists. And so this okay. book includes 45 artists and there are more. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I'm curious about, um, so when you propose, propose this book for publication, it's got over 1,000 color photos in it. I mean, well over 1,000. I think it's just over 1,300 plus a CD that includes another 4,000 or so photographs and site plans. I mean, was it something that was difficult to get published in the first place? Or, or was it okay because it, co- it coincided with this exhi- exhibition? No, it was, it was very difficult. A, because as I mentioned before, this genre falls through the cracks. And so you know, the traditional folklore presses weren't really interested in doing it. The architectural presses were a little bit leery of it. The contemporary art presses, it was kind of too out there for them. Um, the other issues, of course, were that um, I was writing in English, but talking about Spanish sites. So the Spanish publishers weren't really interested, and the American publishers couldn't understand why anybody would want to buy a book on, <laughs> or that many people would want to buy a book on Spanish art environments. Um, plus, uh, it's big, you know, and the uh, many of the original publishers with whom I began discussions, their first their first question to me always was, "Well, let's just do this in e- as an ebook," and that was totally contrary to this idea that I had in my mind about what this book would be. In part because most of those artists did not have internet access or or a computer or any way to access later what I would be writing about them. And although the the majority weren't able to understand my English words, of course, they could at least see that they were big, beautiful photographs and that the work was being presented in a respectful and professional way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well done for you for kind of like pulling it through to completion. Um, now, did you, I can't remember, did you actually define what you mean by art environment? Um, I know that we talked about it in conjunction with folklore. I'm just, I, I can't remember if you had a succinct de- definition of art environment. <laughs> well, not so much. Uh, <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're unique. It's not like you can define art environments like you can define uh, impressionist painting or like you can define um you know, uh, rural barns in America or something like that, in which there are kind of standard typologies that you can respond to. Uh, Art environments really cover a phenomenal range of material. It can be uh, work that is completely architecturally based in that it is an architectural creation from scratch. It can be a uh, an existing architectural structure that has been modified or decorated. It can be new sculpture that has been created. It can be paintings that cover the interior of a home. It can be uh, topiary. It can be uh, grottos or parks or uh, interior spaces, exterior spaces. It's just, it really uh, covers an entire range of material. The, The kind of few things that you can talk about that may be similar in the different cases would be that there's some kind of monumentality there, either in the scale of the work or in the number of com- components that are included in the work. 
Um, and the other thing that is interesting about them, although this is kind of not part of the definition per se, but it is something that helps us understand them, is that most of these were started uh, after the artist completed a life's work of worth, of work, work a life's worth of work, so that uh, he or later she, I'm finding a few women now as I'm continuing, um, had you know put in a life's career. They'd been a a factory worker or a farmer or a sailor or a uh, whatever, and after they had completed their work. They still had energy, and they were able to. Um, they they wanted to to transform that energy into something that was productive, and it would give them an, another a, a kind of validation for existence in a sense that it would be giving them something to do, and they're being creative and they're being expressive, um, and uh, they're able to create in a way because they're none of these artists, and I'm using the term artists, although most of them really don't self-identify as artists. So most of these creator builders really had no um, reference point to the larger uh, art world. And certainly most of them would not have necessarily considered what they were making art. Um, the the builder, Joseph Pujula, who, as I mentioned, is the one that first got me started on this track when I found his site um, up in Catalonia, I, I worked with him from uh, early 2000 until he died in 2016. And it, it took him 12 to 15 years before he actually would acknowledge that what he was making was art. Um, you know, I, I would kind of tease him over the years <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 I'm not, this isn't, this isn't art. This is just a hobby. I'm doing this to entertain myself. He came up with all these um, other descriptors for it. But he finally came around to the idea that what he was doing really is best described as art. <laughs> um, and But it was kind of a, a different way of self-identification that he had to kind of get to uh, after, you know, it took him, it took him time to wrap his mind around that. And that, that was really true with several of the other uh, work that I worked with articulated that as well. There's like, well, artists, well, why am I in this? It's like, well, actually, I would consider you an artist. They're like, me? You know? So. Right, right. It was it was interesting in that way. I, I guess I veered off of your question, but. Um. No, 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 that was that was perfect because you, you answered the question and then went off in an interesting direction. And so now I'm thinking where to go from here, because we've got all these lovely artists to talk uh, about. And um, when we were setting up the interview, we had a little bit of a back and forth about which artists to feature. And, and um, I think you suggested to me that I take a look and see which ones particularly interest me. Me and I wrote back to you, and having tried to do that, and said, well, "I really, I'm, they're all interesting. I don't know where to go." But I guess we could start by looking at um, uh, Piajula's work. Is that how you pronounce his name? Because this is the first one you saw. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember your first sighting of his work and what 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 it was about it that grabbed you? It's just amazing. Well, I should preface this by saying that we so enjoyed our time in Spain that. In, uh, in 1999 that we decided to buy a house there. And uh, we were looking in the area in which we were living down there uh, in Horta de San Juan in southwestern Catalonia, but a, a former art dealer of my husband's was living further north. And he said, oh, you should look up here. This is a much 
um, uh, a much nicer area, you know, be- beautiful between the Pyrenees, the foothills of the Pyrenees and the Mediterranean Sea and a lot of art activity, et cetera. So we, we went and we, we looked in that area and uh, ultimately bought a, an old farmhouse up there. And so we were just taking a little field trip <laughs> out away from the house at one time because we, we actually ended up spending about 10 years fixing it up. Uh, oh, my goodness. And, you know, just kind of going for a drive to kind of learn a little bit about our new surroundings and just passed this on the side of the road. And because I'd been uh, involved in this field for so long, it was like, stop the car. <laughs> it's amazing we didn't get whiplash or into an accident or something. But Pujula was up in the towers. He was about 100 feet high above the road, hammering into this um, these amazing wooden towers that he had constructed, kind of interlacing them with um, willow and other flexible reeds that he I later learned he'd gathered from the nearby banks of the Fluvia River, which ran uh, over at that in that area. Um, and so I started documenting him and talking to him. And so, as I mentioned, the, this first documentation of his that went from about 2000 to 2005 was captured in, um, in the final chapter of my Forms of Tradition in Contemporary Spain book. And um, that book actually ended with um, him having to take down the entire art environment because the government had decided for all kinds of reasons, but most crucially that they wanted to reroute the, that little road that I had been on that almost caused myself an accident on. Uh, And of course they wanted to reroute the road directly through Pujula site because there was a slight curve in the road. Um, But there had been many accidents there and I'm convinced that it wasn't because of the slight curve, but it was because that his, his art environment was there and people are looking at that instead of the road. And so there were a lot of accidents. Um, so the, it was completely depressing for me to have learned of this site, which he had actually started building in the 70s and had gone through a couple of different iterations already by that point, and then to see that I was going to have to be documenting him taking it down. Um, and so that year that he was doing that, I went every single day to document the demolition. And I, I thought it was over. Um, but a year or so later, uh, he, he couldn't help himself. <laughs> and I can't help myself with these, with these sites as well. And I found that he had started to build again. He'd moved a little bit further down the road. They had um, completed the new road itself. And he had... Um, asked the railroad, rail, or not the railroad, the, um, the highway workers to uh, give him some of their extra materials using the term extra in quotes. <laughs> um, so he took cement and steel and other kinds of things from them that they didn't need or weren't using. And he created this amazing lyrical fountain that kind of dropped down the side of the hill that was created after they put this big drainage ditch in to support the the new freeway there. Um, And it was interesting because he articulated later that he never would have changed to that new uh, medium if it had not been for the requirement to dismantle the wooden material and move away from that initial site. Okay. Okay. So it's, um, 
art reacting to the ex- expediency of the moment, I suppose. Um, right. Yeah. The thing that's interesting is that he continued to do that. And after the, the highway was completed and uh, the, the workers left and there was no longer any opportunity to access um, the steel and concrete. Then he went back to the idea of the labyrinth and these towers and created a site that was even more spectacular than before. Uh, you know, towers again reaching up to 100 feet high and a really difficult and intricate labyrinth that, you know, he would laugh because visitors would come and they say, well, can I come in? And they would, he would laugh and say, well, you can go in, but let's see if you can make it out as well. <laughs> um, and it was, he ended up having to take that one down as well. And then finally, uh, in the very last years of his life, the community finally rallied to his cause. And we were able to um, convince the county that they needed to to honor this site and to preserve it. And so he, at the very end, then built four additional towers that he was actually working on when he had a heart attack and died in uh, June of 2016. Oh, gosh. So I know that um, local opposition is is kind of a theme in the book. I mean, um, quite often neighbors or municipal authorities or both have some kind of objection to the art environments. What made the um, local people in uh, Pujula's case come around to him, change their mind about his work? Well, I that it finally became evident that the labyrinth and all of the towers had really become part of the identification of the village. The, the village is very small. There's not a lot going on there. And people would come to this village just to see the labyrinth. Okay. And so as I kept trying to tell the, the municipal authorities for years, you know, they're bringing euros into your town. You know, they're, they're, you know, they go to see the labyrinth and they, you know, have a beer at the bar or they stay overnight in the hotel or they have lunch in the local restaurants. And why not celebrate this rather than trying to destroy it and demolish it? And finally, we were able to work out um, an agreement by which they were able to figure out a way to to make a variance uh, for the for the various rules that he was breaking. Right, right. But the thing, you know, you touch on an interesting point because advocacy for these sites has really become part and parcel of what I do. Uh-huh. Um, I have actually, I have an earlier degree in political <laughs> science, and maybe that's one of the um, the reasons that I'm spurred to do this. But I, I feel like I've, I take a lot of these artists' time. You know, I, I, um, these aren't just drive-bys. These are are uh, long, extensive interviews, often lasting you know, at least several days, if not over many, many years. And I'm always going back and asking questions and taking more pictures and asking to see their old notebooks or, you know, if there's any drawings or talking to family members. And and I feel like it's my responsibility then because I've built up this relationship with them that I need to help them in their hour of need. Right. <laughs> and oftentimes because, simply because of the fact that I'm an outsider I'm from somewhere else. I'm not just a local person. I can galvanize um, opinion in a way that maybe somebody local can't. But I, of course, have to do it in concert with the local community because they're the voters. They will will ultimately throw the bums out, as we say, if if they're not doing what they want. want. And in fact, in Pujula's case, there was a situation in which 
they voted out the mayor who had been the one to demand the demolition of the second iteration of the of the environment. Ah, okay. uh, so, so uh, you know, I go and I I meet with mayors, or I write letters to the junta, or uh-huh. I, you know, I start petition drives, and we, you know, organize demonstrations, and we, you know, we we really try to get uh, the local community to support these sites, and we've had some really good successes. Um, not just in Pujula site, there was a site out in in western Spain, Extremadura, that we were able to save. There were we were able to get fines rescinded off of another artist who was building life size dinosaurs. Um, and of course, um, it takes a lot of work, but it this combination, I think, of of somebody from the outside explaining to them that this actually is a genre of art. It's not just, just some crazy you know, strange construction that doesn't have any basis in anything. Um, and that that exterior point of view com- combined with local uh, advocacy and local local work by the by the community members seems to be a, a pretty winning combination. Um, this doesn't mean that we haven't lost sites because we have, but um, you know we do what we can. Oh, that's really. Um... Terrific to hear, actually, because I think folklorists are quite often interested in how other folklorists have carved out their careers because it's not the most obvious discipline. And so the fact you've been able to unite your folklore interest with your obviously an interest in political science and, and now gain from doing that degree is, is, is just it's great to hear. Um, I, I wonder if maybe we'll move on now to um, Mr. Utria or Tria, because he has a boulder house, and I think that also in, involves some encounters with the local authorities, didn't it? Yes, uh, I should mention that um, in Spain, although his we, his name Dino Bueno Utria, um, but in Spain they um, the the first surname, which in this case is Bueno, is the term they use most. The surname they okay. go by because of okay. the father the father's surname and then the mother's surname. Okay. So if they're going to cut it off, it would just be. To the fathers. Okay. Okay. So Lina Bueno Utria or some Utria. Utria. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about Mr. Lino. Let's just call him Lino. <laughs> so this is this, this is an interesting um, situation, especially because um, it is not unheard of in Spain for people to live in caves. <laughs> Um, there are certain, in the southern part of Spain, there are entire communities in which they have carved out living uh, spaces within caves. Um, we know that that caves provide, as long as they're you know big enough, uh, they provide a really um, uh, satisfying dwelling because there's not a lot of temperature humidity change. They they retain heat and they keep the the temperature and the and the atmosphere fa- fairly stable over time, so it's kind of interesting that this particular house, uh, which this single man carved out of this huge boulder at the end of town, ta- uh, end of town, um, became notable. Um, but I think it's because there were no cave dwellers in that particular area of Spain. Um, but this is an, an interesting story because for me the the um, the story almost reads like a fairy tale. You know, he was this very poor man. He worked as a day worker, just making just pennies every day. He had many, many children. He didn't have a good house. 
uh, they would rent places and then they would get kicked out because they weren't able to um, to pay the rent, even though it was just pennies every month. Uh, and so he got this idea that he would carve out a home at, in this big rock if the city council would let him do that. And of course, they they kind of laughed him out of the room the first time that he proposed it. Um, and then later when he persevered, they said, well, yeah, you go ahead and do that. And if you can really pull this off, then we'll give you the property later. And so he took them at his word and he worked year after year after year. I'm forgetting exactly. I think it was in the neighborhood of 30 years or so uh, that he hacked out with just very, very primitive tools, uh, carving out spaces within this large boulder. And uh, then he went back to the town council um, after he had made, I believe, the first floor's worth and they said, no, forget about it. We, we were just kidding. We're not going to give you that piece of property. And he was just devastated because he'd been working all those years uh, making the assumption that he would have claim to this piece of property if he showed that he had worked it. Um, so he actually decided to write a letter to the king of Spain. Um, and he was, uh, again, this is in the middle of Spain in a teeny tiny village, um, he was not particularly literate. He had to get help from that. But somehow this letter actually made its way to the king and the king decided that this was an interesting enough story that he actually came to visit him in this home. The, the wife and daughters baked the king cookies <laughs> and the king was able to uh, decree that, uh, that he needed to uh, have claim to this, to this rock, basically. And uh, the deed to the land, and they actually even gave him a medal to um, to honor his work. So that's such a beautiful story. I love it. Story. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah. So, and he continued to work really until he died. And the the family today uh, has opened the home. They nobody lives there any longer, but they do open the home, and people can come in and and see this amazing task, including. Um, his tools, which are still there, he he went through several chisels, just working them down so that there was nothing left carving into the stone. Uh, and there was below, there was even a, a kitchen with a fireplace and how difficult it must have been without the technology that we have today to start at the bottom by uh, chiseling up and start at the top by chiseling down and actually meet in the center of this rock such that the, <sighs> the fire and the smoke would actually exit from the ceiling. Um, so I should clarify for our listeners that um, some a lot of the artists you met and you've spoken to, but some of them um, uh, died before you, long before the book was ever thought of. And um, so you're visiting the sites and speaking to people connected to the sites now. In, in this particular instance, I was speaking to family members. I think uh, uh, grand, grandchildren, maybe uh, one uh, son as well, but the grandchildren primarily. So from there, I wonder if we should maybe move on to Garrido Garcia, because that's another interesting story underlying the, um, the creation of his art environment. Um, I'm just going to turn to page 106, because I think that's where it starts. This is a really interesting story, and it... Um, in some ways, it, it really uh, personifies the, the genre in that 
although not certainly not all art environments are are birthed in a moment of trauma or um, or some other significant life event. In this case, it was. And um, Jose Maria Garrido Garcia was a fisherman. He he lived in San Luca de Baranena, which is in the far far southwestern corner of Spain, uh, in in near Cadiz, and um, it's a little fishing village, and everybody had something to do with the sea. They, uh, the men were all sailors, the women would process the fish and the entire economy of the community was built on this. And so, and his family were fishermen. And of course, as soon as he was able to get his license at the age of 15, he was out on the boat. Um, but uh, after he had been working for several years, uh, he and his partner were out on the boat and a terrific storm came up, and uh, they were they were wrestling to keep their footing on the careening boat. These were these are not huge fishing boats by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and the anchor grabbed the um, the pants leg of his partner and pulled him overboard. And Garrido tried desperately to save him. Uh, after the storm passed, they went out. They tried to troll the waters and and find. Him, but they were never able to find the body. And this was such a traumatic event for Garrido that he decided that he would never again go to sea. And this was um, an amazing um, life event because, as I mentioned, this entire community was built on, on fishing and sailing and, and dealing with the sea and using the bounty of the sea, et cetera. Um, but he couldn't deal with it anymore. It was just too, too traumatic for him. So he left and he, uh, he went to France for several years. He and his wife uh, worked there. But at the place that they were working, they weren't able to, um, children were prohibited apparently. And so when she got pregnant, they had to leave and they moved back to town. And he decided that uh, he was still really haunted by this death of his, of his partner and the fact that he hadn't been able to do anything. And and probably a level of guilt that he had survived when his partner hadn't, and his partner had left five kids and a pregnant wife behind. Um, and so he decided that he'd create a memorial to his partner and to all of the, the sailors that had been lost over the years at, on the seas. And so he purchased a, a very derelict building that was near the town market, uh, dating from 1503. Uh, it had been originally a place where they had um, done some customs work with with the uh, uh, goods that had come in from America and the West Indies. and uh, But most recently, it had become degraded, and it had actually turned into a house of prostitution, um, often used by the sailors as their last stop before they left um, on a longer voyage. And so he decided that he was going to turn this building into a museum, uh, a museum of the sea. Uh, and so he did. He um, he covered the entire outside with placards that were uh, proverbs of um, that were usually um, told by fishermen. And on the inside, he covered the entire entire interior with seashells and other detritus that he picked up from the beaches. So he would never go into the water. He wouldn't even go into swim, but he would comb the beaches and he would pick up what the waves had tossed back. Uh, a particularly lucrative time would be after storms, of, co of course. And um, off of the 
coast, there had been many, many, many shipwrecks over the years because this was a, a turbulent area in the waters where the uh, Guadalquivir River empties there into the Atlantic. And so it was just very turbulent. There were many, many shipwrecks. And as new storms would come, some of these older materials would get dislodged and, and find their way onto the beaches. And so he was even, even able to collect old Greek and Roman coins and glassware and other kinds of things. Um, and so he added all of these different materials to, to the interior of his, of his museum. And he wanted to use the museum to tell the story of fishing, fishing in his village and how important it had been to the community and to the, the entire region. On the upper level uh, where the, there was a rooftop terrace, he actually built um, what looks from afar like a ship with masts coming up and rigging. And, but again, it's all, uh, it was all created from found objects that he, that he found on the, on the banks of the rivers or on the beaches of the ocean and dragged back to this, to this home, which is not, as I said, it's near the market. It's not actually that close to the sea if you're dragging materials from the beaches. Um, uh, but it was a phenomenal right. site and uh, really creative and and really inspirational. He said that he had uh, plastered over 80,000 uh, conch shells on the walls. Uh, he also had photographs of, of all the old uh, ships that had come through that port. He had several memorials in there. One was to um, the sailors who had been lost on Columbus's voyage, voyages because they had left from that area, from that point. And he actually named them and oh, right. paid homage to them. Um, interestingly, he also had a memorial to those who died in the German Holocaust uh, because he said that, of course, Franco was, was on the side of Hitler. And uh, he said that growing up, they never heard about it. And it, it wasn't until decades later that they heard that these atrocities had happened and he felt so terrible that these that these events had happened and he hadn't known anything about it and so he he created an homage to those souls had, who had been lost at that time as well um, he lived very much on the edge his uh, since he was no longer fishing uh, he had but he had beautiful um, calligraphy skills. And so he was, a, he became a sign painter and he painted signs for various businesses around town. Um, and then he would also uh, go down to the market and get like the, the jawbones of sharks or other large fish. And he would dry them out and sell them, you know, for five euros at the, uh, he had a little uh -huh. stand near the market. So it was very, very subsistence mm -hmm. living. And all of his, uh, all of his energies were poured into uh, creating this this homage, this memorial. That's a that's a amazing piece of work. What's happened to that museum now? Because that is another piece that is um he ran up against problems with the authorities. Right. Yeah, the building is there, and the museum has all been taken out. Oh, okay. Yeah, he after he died. Uh, well, the as I mentioned, because it's so close to the market, the the city had tried for years to purchase it from him. Uh, they, wanna, they wanted to create kind of a whole condominium or, or apartment complex there. And uh, he wouldn't sell it because he felt, he felt it was so important, the message that he was trying to put out with his museum. 
Um, but there was a building next door that was rotting and had no, the roof fell in and, and there, one of the laws in town is that you cannot prejudice a, a, uh, a contiguous building. If there's something wrong with your building, you have to fix it so that it doesn't damage mm-hmm. the, the next door and the city it didn't even do that, even though it was their law because they really wanted his building to be taken down. Um, mm-hmm. And so they just waited until after he died and then they, they mm-hmm. took it over and um, yeah, it's not there anymore. So that's, you know, again, one of the reasons that it's so important to document these sites is because many times they do not survive the lifetime of the artist. Um, they sometimes it's that they're built out of, ephemeral materials, uh, like Joseph Kojula's working with this willow. Um, I used to climb up to the top, to, to the top of those towers every summer, but by last summer, it had only been a year since he had been working on it, but I just looked at some of those members and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not going up there anymore. <laughs> um, right. and in other cases, they, even people that worked with concrete, they may not have had the skills to do it properly. And so it might split and start to fall apart. And so partly sometimes it's about the deficiency in either, either materials or workmanship. Sometimes it has to do with the fact that the family um, hasn't been in support of, of the work and they're glad to, to bulldoze it as soon as they can. Um, uh, sometimes it's about money. It's, you know, they want to, they want to sell the site or, Sometimes it's just about vandalism that over the years people have picked away at these sites so long that nothing remains. So, um, mm-hmm. so the documentation is really, really important. And the other thing that I, I try to insist on when people ask me about documentation is I say, you know, don't just tell me that you shot this in 2017. Tell me that it was, you know, August 23rd, 2017, because it looked different on August 22nd and it looked different on August 24th if the artist was still working because they were continuously making changes because they were so involved in the site and because they were seeing it every day as they, you know, as they woke up or as they went out to feed the animals or whatever it was, um, there were constant changes. And so uh, the documentation and the specific, you know, the the really specific uh, information about exactly when it was taken is so crucially important to these sites. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, where, where I'm going to throw it over to you. Where, which artists would you like to go to next? Well, one of the ones that I find really intriguing is um, Julio Basanta Lopez, who lives in a small village outside of um, Zaragoza, which is in Aragon, the kind of the center of the country. And uh, he had a very difficult upbringing. Uh, his was in a family of 10. His dad didn't stick around to support the family. And so he and his brothers and sisters, or at least the younger ones, and he was among the youngest, uh, were raised in an orphanage. And um, so he didn't have, he had kind of the basic kind of education that you would have gotten in Franco's Spain during those uh, years of the civil war and the, um, the years of hunger, as they called them afterwards. Um, so he always, again, had kind of a subsistence level of, of living. He learned enough skills to do some basic construction work. And so that's how he provided for his family um, and was able to 
purchase a, a small piece of property uh, on the outskirts of this village um, a, a little later in his life. And he uh, started to uh, ornament the little building. He built some little buildings uh, there, and uh, then he started to ornament the buildings. At a certain point, um, there there became there was a significant another significant life event in his life, which was that his um, his brother was killed. Uh, he would say assassinated in a an altercation that involved the police, and the facts aren't clear. Um, in either this case or in a case that happened a couple of decades following that, in which his only son was also killed uh, in a police encounter. And I think this, the trauma of these two, as he calls them, assassinations, um, caused him to try to work out his grief. And so he started, he, he started to call his home the house of God, Casa de Dios. But it turns out that what he has actually populated this environment with are demons. And he, uh, he believes that there are demons that are residing among all of us. Um, you can tell them by their round red eyes, he says. And um, so he has created this entire population of really creepy figures that he has built out of um, uh, a, a steel infrastructure covered with concrete and then painted in vibrant, vibrant, almost florid colors. Um, he paints and repaints them. And so over the years, I've been able to document the change in the surface decoration. Uh, there was a period in which many of them were fuchsia colored, <laughs> uh, which is pretty astounding when you're looking at devils and demons of all, of all stripes. Um, some of them hold the Ten Commandments. He makes reference to biblical stories um, such as Judas, uh, but he also uh, has brought in more contemporary figures that he that he um, personifies or illustrates as as devils or demons. Among these is a more recent uh, sculpture of Hitler, um, and then in addition to those, he will have many figures that are kind of ghost-like figures that are holding revolvers or pistols to their own heads with blood gushing down in front of them. I mean, it's just an astounding, astounding sight and very, um, very compelling, but very troubling at the same time. Yes, I'm looking at the pictures now. Um, they really are quite ghastly, some of them. <laughs> And it's interesting because he does have signs there that say, you know, taken from one of the commandments, thou shalt not kill. Uh, and he, uh, so he, he's kind of in this middle ground between portraying death and murder and mayhem and, and torture, and yet trying to suggest that people be kinder to each other. Um, but it's, it's a scary sight in many ways. It's, uh, as I said, it's very troubling to view. Yes, it is. Um, it is, very much so. Um, we are beginning to run out of time, so we probably only have what time to talk about one more artist. And one that was on both of our lists was uh, Gonzalez Grajera, or Grajera, um, 
Uh, that's on page 434. I'm going to turn to it now. Um, so tell us about um, Mr. Gonzalez Grajera. This was um, another case of a, of, a, of a young boy in a very small village who didn't feel like there was a lot of um, opportunity for himself in this village. And yet he always felt that he was someone special. Um, he liked to draw as a young boy, uh, but because of the circumstances of, again, growing up during the Civil War and these years of hunger, um, he had no opportunity to follow any kind of artistic muse he might have. He, uh, he calls emigrated uh, from Estremadura up to the Basque country for work, and then after a while came back down and purchased um, uh, some property uh, and uh, began a stoneworking business. And so he created, uh, he created tombstones for the local population and also things like, um, you know, granite shelves or, or uh, walls or those kinds of things, steps. Um, he was given a portion of the property from his father as his father got older and he decided that he was going to build a country home on this piece of property that would be unlike any that anyone had ever seen. And he just started to build and he has created this phenomenal site that is uh, full of fantastic flowers and, and uh, animals that don't exist in nature. And, and uh, the entire structure, the entire architectural structure, which is very complex, doesn't include a single straight line in it anywhere. Uh, he just, feels that straight lines were, are boring and he really wanted to use this to celebrate the curve. I think also in, in part that he was rebelling against the really rectilinear geometric work that he was doing on a day-to-day -day basis in his, in his stoneworking business. It's, it's absolutely fantastical. I think I wrote down that it looks like a fairy tale castle. It really does. It really does. And um, although he did a couple of pen and ink drawings um, to begin with, he never made any anything that would actually be like a blueprint that you could follow to actually build this thing. And he he said that architects would come in and they'd be astounded to see, you know, licensed practicing architects would be astounded to see how he could make curves go up and down and out and in at the same time. It just completely um, very very complex uh, circumstances. He also ran into trouble with the municipality who wanted uh, him to uh, stop building. They came up with all kinds of reasons that he was, uh, you know, going against the urban codes, et cetera. Uh, but finally, again, they, uh, the, the uh, government changed and a new mayor came in who was more sympathetic. And so he was able, although he had stopped probably for a good ten, seven to 10 years altogether, um, during the uh, kind of 2000s, he at the towards the end of his life, he was able to come back and and really continue to work on the site with great flourish. Um, he didn't he didn't ever finish. He died in December of 2016, but he had a son who was working with him in the stoneworking business, who has been uh, continuing some of his work, and and the family will send uh, periodically send me. Uh, new photographs of of how things have changed and how they're continuing to work on the site. So 
he was never able to move in and enjoy it the way he had thought he would, but he has made a lasting uh, contribution to this entire area because it is really one of the most spectacular sites in all of Spain. So um, a lot of the men that you have interviewed or the works that you've documented, they've been constructed over uh, many years with, um, and they include tons of detail. And this book was constructed over many years and contains tons of detail. And it sounds like you're still ongoing with this research. You said that since the book, which only features men, you found some female um, creators of art environments. Are you seeing any kind of like pattern between your work and the work of the people that you're documenting? Yeah, I'm afraid that it's become just as uh, obsessive as the artists themselves. (laughs) Yes, it's interesting. I was able to spend uh, 14 months in Spain together uh, running the CSU's international program during 2015-2016. And so I gave a lot of lectures around the country. And at the end of every lecture, I would say, so if anybody knows of any sites that are not in my book, let me know. And it was almost kind of a capricious throw out to the audience at the end. But every time somebody would say, oh my God, in my grandfather's village, there's a fill in the blank, right? So I'm actually embarked on um, on uh, the second volume of this book. I actually already have somewhere in the neighborhood of the same number of artists, around 40, oh 45 goodness. artists. And I just learned of another one today. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many sites there are. Um, so I'm hoping, I do have a sabbatical in the fall, and I'm hoping to really just power through it and, and uh, hit all of these sites that I currently know about so that I can, so that the next book won't take me 14 years to do like the last one. I'm curious, though, when you hear of another art environment, are you kind of like, oh, no, not another one? Are you, do you ever feel like that? Or, or is it always excitement about the prospect of it's- I definitely am ambivalent because it's a lot of work. As I right. said, these these aren't drive-bys. These are, you know, full documentations that go on and on with the artist and or the artist's children and or both if they're still around uh, and really trying to dig deeply into uh, inspiration, into how the work has changed over time, into, you know, all of the different facets of the artist's creation and how he or she views it. Um, and yes, as you mentioned, I actually have found four now women, uh, which I'm thrilled about because I looked really hard the first time. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was kind of convinced that it was because of the kind of sociological pressures um, that are gender based within many countries in which, you know, the men may retire from their jobs. But even if women had exterior jobs and they uh, were able to retire from them, they're still cleaning the house and cooking and caring for grandchildren and, and continuing with the kind of ongoing gender-based roles that women have tended to have in so many cultures all over the world. And so for that reason, there are many, 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 many less women art environment builders than there are men that we've documented all over the world, although some that we have are spectacular. And I'm mm-hmm. really excited to be able to introduce the work of um, these new women as well in my next volume. Yeah, that's definitely something to uh, to uh, celebrate. Um, just w- one last question before uh, I, I finish asking you questions, which is, so you had thousands and thousands of photographs. How did you choose the one that's on the front of the book? <laughs> it w- that was, um, that took a, a lot of deciding. <laughs> I just can't imagine how you said about it. I mean, I love that. I love the way it looks, but I'm curious. Yeah, um, it was... 
actually a combination between the designer and my husband and myself and kind of everybody that I was talking to. I'm like, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? We looked at a couple of different options. But I did like that it was um, a solitary chair on the front, uh, you know, reinforcing the singularity of these sites and the fact that the work is done solo. These are not constructions that are made um, by a group of people. Um, in a couple of instances, we have circumstances in which a wife might help or a, a daughter or a son might help. But really, these are the impulse and the inspiration of a single, a single worker. And so um, that was one of the reasons that, that we gravitated towards that particular image. Um, I would just describe it. It's, it's, um, it's a, a black kind of wooden chair, which has, has been painted and, and then painted with sort of drips of other colors. And it's got some planks from, of other colors on it. And then it's against a, a red wall and on uh, above a, a gray floor, which has the words, uh, the numbers 2120 in yellow. So it's all quite striking. It's also very enigmatic. Um, and this is actually, this was actually the exterior wall of this man's house and the street. Um, the numbers are actually painted on the street. And he oh, okay. was um, deaf and so very hard to uh, get a lot of information out of. But he had something going on with numbers and he painted numbers all over this town, not only on the facade of his home and on the interior of his home uh, and on a, a lot of discrete uh, artworks that he used to create this art environment, but on the highway and on the lamppost <laughs> and on the on <laughs> And nobody really knew exactly what these numbers referred to. So you know, I think that the enigmatic quality of that also um, featured into the, to our, to our ultimate choice. But you'll notice also that I couldn't help myself. And on the back, we have. (laughs) (laughs) So the back is a got, yeah, little, little photos uh, in lines of, of lots and lots of the other artworks. Yes. Amazing. The book is included there. Okay. Okay. I did. I hadn't counted them up, but yes, that's that's lovely. Um, so I uh, I am going to restrict myself or stop myself from asking you any more questions. Is there anything that you would like to say before we uh, finish? Because I've taken up quite a lot of your time now. Well, I really appreciate having the opportunity to share this. Um, you know, I want to say a lot of people ask me, "Well, is this something that's special about Spain?" And no, uh, this, these are. Um, impulses that are universal. We find art environments all over the world. And um, we, with spaces, we try to document them and we try to um, provide a forum for people to provide input so that we can learn about new art environments all the time, all over the world. And um, I would just suggest that people keep their eyes open (laughs) and let me know if they see something. Right. Okay. Well, there'll be a link to your site on the uh, webpage that accompanies this uh, podcast. So, um, yes, more sites, to, more information about more sites. Thank you so much, uh, Joe Fab Hernandez, for talking to us about um, Singular Spaces. Let me give it its full title. Singular Spaces from the Eccentric to the Extraordinary in Spanish Art Environments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. It's been a pleasure.